It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 12th of July. Good morning and welcome with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's begin this morning by wishing you a happy 12th of July. It's not a phrase that rolls easily off the tongue as it has been the date in the Irish calendar that signifies division. The 12th has divided people on this island for 329 years since King William defeated King James around the corner and up the road from where I'm sitting now. At the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, thousands of Irish men on both sides of the conflict were slaughtered. King William of Orange is celebrated now by the Unionist community who march and light bonfires with councils threatened by the UVF that they'll get shot if they try to remove the pallets that provide the wood to fuel the sectarianism. But will it ever end? Well, not before there's a border poll which would decide on reuniting Ireland. Brexit has raised exactly this as a prospect. But what is the risk? A question debated yesterday in the Shannon. The issue of Brexit is separate and distinct from a border poll. And I think that is important to say that, and I believe that to be the case. Can I say that the full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement and the substantive agreements is a priority for the government? The approach of the government in relation to Irish unity is, of course, guided by Article 3 of the Constitution, as amended uh, by the people in 1998. The principle of consent consent and the possibility of change in the constitutional status of Northern Ireland are fundamental elements of the Good Friday Agreement, endorsed by the people of this island, both North and South. And I think it's worth recalling here the precise wording and provisions of the Good Friday Agreement in this regard. Under the agreement, the Irish and British governments firstly recognise the legitimacy of whatever choice is freely exercised by a majority of people in Northern Ireland with regard to its status whether they prefer to continue to support the union with Britain or a sovereign uh, united Ireland. Secondly, recognise that it is for the people of Ireland alone by agreement between the two parts uh, respectively and without internal impediment to exercise their right of self-determination on the basis of consent freely and concurrently given north and south to bring about a united Ireland. 
If that is their wish, accepting that this right must be achieved and exercised with the subject to the agreement and consent of the majority of people in Northern Ireland. And thirdly, affirm that if in the future the people of, of the island of Ireland exercise, exercise their right of self-determination on the basis set out above, it will be a binding obligation on both governments to introduce and support in their prospective parliaments legislation to give effect to that wish. Minister John Halligan was uh, speaking on behalf of uh, the government in response uh, to questions uh, put uh, to the government by Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly who joins us now and you want uh, the risk in holding a referendum to be assessed it appears as though the government has no intention of heeding that call. Yes, I suppose the, the issue here came about because myself and Sean Fleming, Deputy Sean Fleming, the Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, asked the question of the Taoiseach and the Taunashta and all government ministers as to why the issue of Uniting Ireland is not part of the government's national risk assessment, which they have done every year since 2014. They have looked at all the issues that could affect Ireland. Included in the national risk assessment is everything from global warming global terrorism, cybersecurity, the hospital crisis, the housing crisis, homelessness, all the issues that we speak about every day. Under instability in Northern Ireland in the National Risk Assessment is the issue of Stormont not being in place and the consequences for the communities of that. And also mentioned in the National Risk Assessment is the possibility of another referendum in Scotland on Scottish independence. But there is no mention anywhere of there ever being a possibility of a referendum on a united Ireland or there ever being a united Ireland. And when we asked the government why was this, they said they did not see it as a risk. But then they went on to say, uh, the Taoiseach said, that it was too important and too sensitive to be in the national risk assessment. And that's why I posed the question yesterday. It was directed to the Tarnishta, but he didn't come in to answer the question as to why the government wasn't looking at this issue. And the lesson of Brexit is this. You don't hold a referendum and then try to figure out the future. And in his reply yesterday, the Tarnister, read out by Deputy Halligan, said that they would look at the issue when the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland caused the referendum. We all know. But that is Does the that point. Uh, and that was the logic of the argument. We heard John Halligan set out the conditions under which a referendum might be held if one is ever to be held. But those conditions don't exist at the moment. And the prospect of holding a referendum is not one that is realistically possible in the near future. So there is no need to carry out a risk assessment. Well, I mean... I I suppose we made that point to the Tarnished in our submission and the Taoiseach in our submission, myself and Deputy Fleming, on the National Risk Assessment, that they should listen to the voices in unionism that are talking about the issue of United Ireland. And Lady Sylvia Herman, who is the unionist MP for North Down, she's an independent unionist member of Westminster. Her husband was the chief constable of the RUC. Mm. And she said, because of Brexit, there will be a referendum on a United Ireland in my lifetime. So yeah. if unionism and Arlene Foster has spoken about the issue of a referendum, the British Prime Minister has talked about the issue of a referendum, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan, said that he believed there would be a united Ireland at some stage. And so, this week, I, the chair of Westminster's Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, Simon Hoare, feared that there would be a united Ireland because of Brexit. He said he was worried that he'd wake up one morning uh, and live in the United Kingdom of England and Wales, which would be missing Northern Ireland and Scotland. Oh, it's very likely that Scotland will have a referendum in the next four 
to five years, another referendum, and that then will have a knock-on effect for Northern Ireland. But the government don't be don't seem to be listening to the lessons of Brexit. We see the chaos of causing a referendum like they had in Britain, calling one on Brexit and not having the necessary preparation done. I'm not saying we should have a referendum tomorrow, but people I've met in the unionist community all believe there will be a referendum at some stage. Logic dictates that at some stage there will be a referendum. Could be five, could be ten years' time. But we should use that time to make the preparations to engage with the unionist community, to talk to all the people on all sides of what the future will look like and their ideas and their concerns. Mm. And if you listen to their concerns, you can address those concerns and not have a situation like has happened in Britain where they held a referendum and literally don't know what to do next. We should have the referendum as the full stop in a long campaign of engagement like we do in the South in all our referendums and we've done for the last number of referendums where you have citizens' assemblies, constitutional conventions, you have public debates, you have discourse, you have white papers and then at the end of a long process then you have the referendum. Britain simply did it the reverse. They had the referendum and then tried to figure it out and we need to look at all the issues well in advance. So for the government, first of all, to say that it's not a risk. Everything you do in life is a risk. There's some elements of risk. Some are large, some are small. But the more you do to engage and mm. address the risks, then the less the risks become. But the but government is saying there's no risk uh, associated to a border poll at the moment because there's no risk of a border poll. But, no, but the, the, the idea of the national risk assessment is long-term planning, medium to long-term planning, horizon scanning, per- is what they, to use their own uh, terminology, what are the long-term things that are coming down the line? So if they're willing to put... Well, the first, step in, the first step in that is Brexit, uh, and uh, that is part of uh, the National Risk Assessment. And as the Minister outlined to you yesterday, relationships between people on all sides of uh, the divide and in every corner of this island, north and south of this island, are being assessed, uh, and what risk there is to those relationships under how the Brexit risk is being assessed. Well, no, they're they're talking about Brexit, and Brexit has been mentioned as the national risk assessment. And as I said, global warming, global terrorism, cybersecurity, all of those issues are addressed, but yet they're failing to mention things that the unionist community are talking about as a consequence of Brexit, as Lady Sylvia Herman and others have said, that there would be a a referendum on the United Ireland. So they're acknowledging that Brexit is a risk. We all accept that. We know there are possible fallouts mm. in relation to Brexit, but what they're not saying is there's any further risks after well, well, They're saying there's no... They're, they're, like, and I'm not saying that a referendum is in a, a year or two years' time. I'm saying at some stage down the line, like the issue of global warming is mentioned, that that's Decades. Well, can it, even be con- can it even be contemplated at the moment when council workers or contractors working on their behalf are being told they'll be shot if they try to move a few pallets? Yeah, and I, that was a report that I compiled with two UNESCO chairs. We looked at the issues of how you prevent a return to violence in the run-up to a referendum on a United Ireland. I spoke on your show about it. These are experts in preventing violent extremism. And what is happening in those communities is Loyalist paramilitary leaders who have drug trades and who want to control and influence their areas are radicalizing young people, this agreement generation who have an absence of memory of harm, and they're mobilizing those kids under the banner of culture and identity, but basically to keep 
criminal empires going. And the plan that the UNESCO chairs came up with in how to prevent that happening is you need to engage in those communities now. So that's why forward planning by the Irish government, the British government, the EU and others, where we go into those disadvantaged areas like the Cregan in, in Derry, but also in East Belfast, where you give education opportunities, job opportunities, housing, and you attack those issues now. But that's long-term engagement. That requires planning. Mm. And that means that those kids won't be radicalised, won't be exploited by paramilitary leaders to keep their criminal criminal empires going. But if the government keep denying that there will ever be a referendum on the United Ireland, take the, take the issue of Brexit aside. But if the unionist community are saying that there's going to be a referendum because of Brexit. That's mm. what Lady Sylvia Herman has said. The Irish government are actually saying, no, we don't want you talking about it in relation to Brexit. But Brexit has been the catalyst of this issue. Failing to address that and acknowledging that means the Well, risk Brexit may bigger. end up being the catalyst of a hard border. It, and that's the other thing that the, the UNESCO's chairs looked at, and I asked them to look at, along with President Obama, senior policy advisor on countering violent extremism, what should the Irish government be doing now mm. to make sure that risk doesn't become a reality? And the problem is the government are saying that it is the issue of a referendum is not risky. They, they don't see it as a risk. No, but they're not saying they, that a hard border isn't risky. Well, the, the, the UNESCO chairs are saying that in, in the event of a return to a hard border yeah. on this island, there will be a return to violence. The yes. only issue is the scale of the and, violence. And so, undoubtedly, that is uh, the risk that the government is assessing as part of its Brexit preparations under the National Risk Assessment Process. Absolutely, but they are literally failing to mention the main aim of the state in the National Risk Assessment. And their answer is, we don't see it as a risk. Now, I don't think any of your listeners believe that there is no risk to that, that issue. There are risks to everything in to, life. To, to which issue? More, to, 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 to the issue of, of a referendum. So, but well, the, of course. But the, less, yeah. but the lesson of Brexit is that you don't hold the referendum, so you don't rush No, but if you, if you start talking about holding referendums, you polarise people, do you not? No, you talk about what the future looks like. Talking about the next hundred years. Uh, and those fellows who are going to shoot the council workers, uh, how do you think they're going to respond to that? Uh, especially in the current climate where we're looking at the very real prospect of a hard border. Yeah, and I mean, I, for reports that I did for the Good Friday Agreement Implementation Committee, which is a report adopted by all members of the committee on the issue of Brexit and the future of Ireland, uniting Ireland in peace mm. and prosperity, I got a member of the UDR who is the captain in the Ulster Defence Regiment, and he... Um, give a submission looking at the fears and concerns of the unionist community, one of which I, we spoke before about was the issue of land. The unionist community believe that the Irish government are going to take land off them, that the land is going to be taken away from them. Now, you and I know that isn't going to happen, but nobody's telling them that's not going to be the case. So the more the Irish government doesn't set out a vision for the whole island, for the future of the whole island, for the next hundred years, the more those fears would be exploited by politicians on, on all sides for their own end. Do you, believe, do you believe that there will be a hard border on this island uh, sometime this year or shortly after that? There's every possibility, yeah, that, and that's what the government's announcement this week and preparations for were about, but... The, the issue of their national risk assessment is not about just immediate problems, but about long-term problems. And that's why they need to recognise risks and recognise the concerns mm. in the unionist community, okay. especially around the issue of identity, and they need to address those risks. But the more they don't talk about it, the more fear is generated in the unionist community. Okay, but there are, there, there are a number of ways of 
avoiding that hard border, which would see a return to the troubles, to violence, to a war of sorts. Uh, And one of those ways is that they delay Brexit or postpone it uh, to allow time for a general election or a referendum in the UK. Uh, Do you believe that there's much chance of that? Um, From talking to people in Westminster, that doesn't appear to be the case because um, the British Prime Minister or the new 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 uh, elected British Prime Minister um, is going to have to save his own job. That's his own okay. priority. That's his number one priority and save the Tory party. Okay, well then there's, there's there's two other ways of avoiding a return to the Troubles and one is to give up the idea of the backstop. Do you believe the Irish government could or should do that? No, the Irish government are right in, in insisting on the backstop because the backstop is about preventing a return to the hard border. But it may and cause... If, don't, if, you don't have a hard, if you don't have the backstop, then the hard border comes back. And the British government, by bear in uh, mind... And if you, if you that, do insist on the backstop and it's rejected by the British, uh, well, then they crash out without a deal and the result, a hard border. Yeah, but bear in mind, and your listeners are aware of this, it was the British negotiated the backstop. They were the ones that insisted no, that well, the backstop I, 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 would be placed inside it. They were the ones that negotiated that there would be no divergence between the North and I, 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 I don't know if there's any value in, in debating what's right and what's wrong in this. No, no, no. But, like, but the, the issue here is the incoming British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was okay. the foreign minister who negotiated the backstop. Sure, but I'm, what, what, that's, that, that's not what I'm putting to you. What he's negotiating. Yeah, he, he doesn't know where Newry is, let alone Belfast. Uh, what I'm suggesting to you is that you're talking about the return of a hard border uh, under uh, Brexit. It, it can be avoided if we uh, give up the idea of a, a backstop but you're saying, let's not do that. Is that right? No, no, because the, the, the issue of the backstop means that the British will not have any divergence between the North and the South of Ireland, which means the border will not come back. Yes, unless and they the reject backstop the backstop goes, and then there's a hard only, border. You're only putting in a time delay on the backstop. It, it might be a few months later. It might be a year later. But eventually the hard border will come back. OK, so we should, hold, we should hold firm... Uh, regardless, uh, regardless of how that might result in a return to the Troubles. It's, it's not about the return to the Troubles, it's about preventing a return to the Troubles. That's why the backstop is in there, is to make sure that the British government in this negotiation... Yes, but if they say they, no, what they happens? Say no. They're the ones that insisted on it. Yes, but if they say no now... But they're the ones that insisted on it, so I, yeah. they must stand by what they said. Otherwise, the rest of the negotiations is a waste of time, because if the British one week say... We but that's, want where, to, but, but that's where we are, Mark Daly, isn't it? But the situation is where we are, is the British government and Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister, negotiated this agreement. Whatever. They're the ones that have to deliver the agreement. They negotiated it. So Whatever. They have to resolve this within Westminster. Yeah, well, and they don't. We now have a situation. Well, no, situation they don't. They, yeah, they, they, do they don't. It's a sovereign state. It can take whatever position it wants. There but it did take the but you're, but you're making the point. From yes. Your, but the thing is, they negotiated this position. No, I, I understand, but that doesn't matter. Doesn't we're, matter. We're, we're not talking about logic here. We're talking about the... Oh, well, the, the, the we're, we're talking about... Logic. No, we're talking about the illogical position that the British government is taking. Yeah, they negotiated this position, yeah, and now and we're saying that they can't yeah, deliver it. So the only they're, hmm. what they do next is they have to stand over it because otherwise the no, they EU, don't. 
they but don't. they do because they have to. Their next phase is they yeah. have to negotiate an agreement with mm. the EU, and the EU are going to say, "Well, if you can, if you negotiate something with us, yeah. like the backstop, yeah. like the payment." But this is exactly what we're the, talking the, about the uh, for the last three and, years. The idea yeah. of them crashing out of the United Kingdom. We're looking at that happening happening on the thirty first of October. The main reason for that is the backstop. That's the obstacle. Uh, and if they don't agree to the backstop, well, then that's it. They don't agree to it, and the result is a hard border on this island, is it not? But as the EU negotiators and Ireland have been making the point to them, but it's not that they don't agree to it, they negotiate it. Yeah, Boris Johnson but they're not listening. They're not listening. You're talking to a brick wall in many ways. Well, but the, 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 rea- the hard reality of it is the economic consequences for Britain mm. for actually... I understand, it, but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. They negotiated it. They have to stand by what they negotiate. No, they don't. The trade agreement has no value for the EU if you can't negotiate with somebody and they actually stand by what they themselves have agreed. 100% correct. 100% correct on every front. But so what? If they say no, then that's it. There's no deal. They crash out hard border. But the border comes back if they, if the backstop isn't there. The hard border comes back at some stage if the backstop isn't there. Well, may or may not. Uh, there's no, another. No, 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 no. Everybody no. knows that. I know. My ah, no, that's not that, that's not correct because there's two years to negotiate a, a trade deal uh, uh, in the future relationship uh, agreement. The uh, border may be dealt with. But this is the time. That but we this is the backstop. The backstop is, is just an insurance policy to make sure that it doesn't come back. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so that doesn't mean that it will come back without the backstop. But the British position is, if they were, if they were not concerned about any divergence between the north. Maybe and the north so, but what you said is completely inaccurate. It, it, it doesn't mean that without the backstop there is a hard border. It means that there isn't an insurance policy to stop a hard border. That's and that's exactly the reason for the backstop mm. is to ensure yes. that the British don't have any divergence but it, between the. But if they the crash out without a deal, there's a hard border. So, but anyway, you, you, if you, they don't agree to the backstop, yeah. then the hard border comes back. No, it you're, doesn't. All you're doing, you know, it does. No, not necessarily. So, it, well, if the British, if the British were guaranteeing us that there would be no divergence, they would have no problem with the backstop. The reason they have a problem with the backstop is there will be divergence. Well, it's because the deal hasn't been made yet, and they say it compromises their negotiation position. Uh, But you're you're saying keep the backstop. It's their negotiating position, and they understand that. But bear in mind, the problem the EU have with this is, and you, as you said it yourself, there is no logic to this. The new British Prime Minister was the guy who negotiated the backstop as Foreign Secretary. And yet now he's saying, I don't agree with what I already negotiated. Has, now, has he been selected? <laughs> well, we're not dealing with logic here. So the problem is, yeah. we can only deal with logic on our side. If the British want to be illogical, but what we have right, to do is there's a, We uh, have to protect lives. That's d- the just very quickly, there's a, the, there is a third way of, of avoiding a border, uh, and that's leaving the EU. We're not leaving the EU. Everybody in Ireland knows. Every, in Britain, we're not leaving the EU because the EU has transformed this country beyond recognition. Mm. So we're not going to be leaving the EU. Well, that's what Simon Coveney was talking about when he was suggesting that we might be dragged out of the European Union or dragged out of the single market. There's a difference in, in that, in that if, 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 if they do the backstop different ways or the British want us to do it different ways, like they have proposed early on, that we would have British customs officers on our ports checking goods. Now, do you seriously believe that's ever going to happen? 
that was their proposal. There's nobody in Ireland going to stand by that. Okay, I believe that there'll be a, a general election and uh, that uh, this uh, will be changed uh, as a, a result of that and possibly another referendum. Well, change is coming. That's, that, 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 that's a, another day's work and God knows because uh, the future is uncertain and that is the only thing that is certain. We leave there for the moment though. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's proving to be a tragic year beyond uh, belief. Uh, three children have uh, died tragically in County Loud in uh, the last number of weeks. Uh, the second child to die by drowning was a 10-year-old boy who is uh, being named in Carlingford as uh, Joshua Hill, uh, who lost his life in a hot tub in his home yesterday. And uh, we're joined uh, by local Fianna Fáil TD, Declan Brannock. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Undoubtedly, a community is in shock at uh, the news of uh, this latest tragedy. Unfortunately, Michael, it's a family devastated uh, and in deep mourning, uh, obviously followed by a community of people, uh, both in Mountain Park and Carlingford, but the wider Cooley Peninsula, and in absolute shock, which I think... You summed it up there, a county uh, in disbelief at such terrible tragedies, namely that of uh, Josh Hill, 10 year old yesterday, with a drowning with Gilamante, 14 year old at Sea Point recently, and together with a 7 year old tragedy uh, uh, of Chantel Keenan. Um, it's with absolute disbelief that these uh, three young tragedies could come to a little county. Uh, and sad time uh, for those families and my thoughts and the thoughts of all your listeners and people uh, need to be expressed, I suppose, on the wider issue of uh, particularly the drowning tragedies. Uh, it's, you know, one time to go back, I experienced myself with a young son in a, in a small swimming pool when he was just a child. But the reality is that
come on and give an opinion and I want to express that sympathy on behalf of the people, but also to say to people, water is dangerous, dangerous as electrical current, uh, and mm. you know, we just need vigilance, and hopefully this, our county will not have any more. Uh, Indeed. In reality, that's what the statistics is. Okay. We have an average of five burnings weekly in this country. It really is uh, terrible. Okay, Declan, I'll have to leave it there because uh, the quality of line is very poor. Uh, But thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning as uh, the people of uh, County Loud in particular in this time in Carlingford and uh, the Cooley Peninsula, as Declan Bannock was saying, face into a tragedy. It's another tragedy, the third tragedy which has involved uh, the loss of a, a young child in recent weeks in County Louth, tragedy heaped upon tragedy uh, and all truly accidents uh, and that is what makes it all the more heartbreaking and harder to understand uh, because uh, I'm not sure that anybody could have avoided any of uh, these things. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about riptides. Whatever they are, we'd have said a couple of weeks before that uh, and yesterday this incredibly hard to understand story of how a child was in a hot tub uh, and something went wrong and it to some degree tells us how fragile we are and how all the more fragile we are when we're younger uh, and uh, do watch out uh, for young people across uh, the summer months uh, indeed especially as uh, they are having fun in the water which is I suppose uh, what uh, we are designed uh, to do. Our thanks to Finnefall TD in Loud, Declan Braddock. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, another tragedy or what Patrick O'Bean uh, tells us is what uh, a family have been telling him is a tragedy because of what happened in the National Maternity Hospital and how that has resulted in them not having uh, been in a position to be able to give birth to a child. This uh, was an abortion that was carried out uh, by a hospital on a child that was um, 15 weeks in gestation. Uh, the child was a, a healthy child and was a much-wanted child by the parents. Um, the information that the parents received was incorrect. Um, the parents inf- uh, received information after a screening test to say that the child had a life-limiting condition or a fetal fatal abnormality. But as it turned out, uh, when the diagnostic test was received in the end if it was found that the child was fully healthy but at that stage the abortion had actually happened um, so and the, the diagnosis of, was that the child had Edward syndrome wasn't it well actually uh, the, the, there was a screening test mm. that indicated that the child may have Edwards syndrome but the actual diagnostic test um, showed that the child was healthy so people might be aware with regards to the cervical check that there are screening tests which show certain results but they're not diagnostic tests. And in a similar fashion, uh, this was the case. So no diagnosis had ever showed that the um, the child had uh, Edwards syndrome. Just the screening tests indicated it possibly could have been the case. Okay. But unfortunately, the abortion happened before the diagnosis test uh, was actually completed. And I, I'm and not sure if it's worth mentioning, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening to us now who know people who have Edwards syndrome who have been alive for a, a number of weeks, months, uh, and in many cases, years and many years into their teens and uh, sometimes longer in life. Absolutely. And, and this, there's, there's a major difficulty uh, with regards to the government legislation on this issue. And indeed, we had uh, obstetricians come before the committee when the legislation was being discussed before Christmas 
Uh, and it, w- one of the obstetricians I remember saying that the consequences of this are very serious. Uh, they said that we could end up with a termination done for a, con- a condition that is not fatal, fat- fatal or vice versa. And indeed, when I was speaking before, the uh, during the legislation, I stated that this law had a margin of error in it and that that margin of error would be healthy human beings and that that was a very dangerous thing uh, to happen. And indeed, unfortunately, this is, this is what, what has happened. Mm. So, the but, uh, are, Of course, uh, uh, terminating a, a pregnancy is legal under all circumstances up to three months. Yes, but uh, obviously this abortion happened at 15 weeks, which was after mm. the, the, the three months uh, stage. Um, so that this abortion wouldn't have fallen into that three-month uh, category. Um, now, this family, obviously, they're devastated themselves, and I could understand that most families with this level of devastation would maybe recede into the privacy of their own grief, uh, etc. But this family are determined to achieve justice for themselves, to achieve justice for their, for their unborn child. And the primary objective of this family is to make sure that it never, ever happens again to any family. So what they've been trying to do is to try to get the minister and the teacher to pay attention to this, to this particular case. I've raised it in the doll uh, with the teacher. The teacher has refused to touch it. He has said that this is a private issue. It's clearly not because the family put the information uh, into the public mm. domain. And the family have sent a letter uh, a number of times to the Minister for Health uh, to ask to meet, uh, to sit down to discuss this issue. And the Minister for Health hasn't responded in any way to it. And I think that the Minister for Health needs to show compassion to this family, needs to sit down with them, and needs to tease out exactly uh, what has happened so this simply doesn't happen again. Okay, Uh, so at 15 weeks when the family got this diagnosis, that was back in March at some time, and your contention is that had they not been told that their child may have Edwards syndrome, that they've gone ahead and brought the pregnancy to full gestation and the child would be due to come into this world in the coming weeks, actually. Yeah, so, so so in other words, um, the the uh, birth of the child would have, would be very very close to us uh, in this time scale, and that's one of the major sadnesses of of this issue is that this is not something that went wrong in March and it's over. This is something that the family are living through on a weekly basis because there's a time scale of the normal evolution of a pregnancy and a birth uh, and uh, the growth of the child, uh, which is simply obviously not happening, and um, so. So to, to achieve justice and to make sure that this doesn't happen again, the family has thought that there would be a, a fully independent uh, inquiry into this. Um, they have and last time we spoke to you, you were very concerned uh, because it had originally been suggested that uh, the hospital would carry out its own inquiry. Yes. So currently the family wanted uh, uh, two things. They wanted to be able to help decide the composition of the review panel. Uh, and they wanted that review panel to be from outside of the HSC, so that the review panel would be from uh, outside the jurisdiction, if possible. And um, they also wanted to be uh, involved in the steering of the terms of reference of this particular case. Uh, and due to the fact that um, the, um, the the government, uh, sorry, the the hospital and the government have come back with a fate of the complete with regards to the composition of the uh, review panel and the steering uh, uh, element of the investigation, the family haven't had the inputs that they sought uh, for this. So that's obviously created great difficulty and and great anger with the family. Because you know and I know, if there is uh, an investigation and it's not fully objective, 
it's not going to get the best results. And the danger for the family is, if they accept this uh, composition, knowing that it's not fully mm. objective, but then they're, they, they're nearly forced to accept the results of the investigation as well. Has uh, this been decided yet, though? Because uh, the minister issued a statement yesterday, as uh, did uh, the National Maternity Hospital, and uh, the minister said, or a spokesperson for the minister in this statement said, that the minister's overriding concern had always been for the family, who he said had experienced a terrible tragedy, and that from the outset he believed an external review was warranted. And... Um, the, the minister said a number of things on this case, but I don't believe that the minister is being fully honest on this. Like, for example, the minister stated yesterday that he had sent a letter to the family saying that he would be happy to meet the family, and that's not the case, because I know from from the family uh, as of yesterday mm. uh, and the solicitor, they have received no le- no such letter okay. uh, from the minister. And, and, I, I, and I don't know, maybe it hasn't arrived or maybe there's uh, an explanation for that. But uh, as you say, the minister uh, in this statement has said that. He also said he believes it's important that the independent external review is allowed to conduct his work and that the family are kept informed at all stages and that they're involved in it and that he did write to them and he confirmed that he would meet with the family at their request. Yeah, so so this is again where the words of the minister deviate from what's actually happening uh, on the ground. Promises and assurances have been given to the family all along this process and those promises and assurances have so far to date not been followed through. And, you know, we, we have discussed some elements of this particular case and there are a, a large a, a large number of other very, very serious allegations, which I won't go through to you, uh, with you on, on, the, on the show today because I don't want to impugn anybody in this process. And I want to make sure that there is proper due process for both sides of this particular case. And there is an investigation taking that into there is place. An investigation in, 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 in place. Into the events sure. that led up to it. And the National Maternity Hospital, the master of uh, the maternity hospital, Shane Higgins, has commissioned an independent external review into what the hospital is describing as a deeply tragic case and they say that the review will be conducted entirely independently of the hospital. Does that satisfy you, Patrick O'Brien? But see, my understanding is that there are... um, It's it's not external from the HSC, that it's not external from the jurisdiction. And originally, um, it, it it was thought that it would be external from the HSC and the jurisdiction. So in other words, it would be completely separate from the profession within within Dublin. And um, my understanding is that it's not, and that actually it's composed of people who have actually, you know, in some cases spoken about this case already uh, in the public domain. There's a couple of other elements with regards to the um, uh, public policy issues that are important here. Um, the I, I wrote to the minister and asked the minister a, a number of questions. Um, the, one of the questions I asked was that would the state's claims agency be providing indemnification uh, for cl- the clinics who are involved in carrying out the initial, the initial screening tests uh, in cases such as this. Um, and the minister came back and said that uh, that the state claims agency would indeed be indemnifying these private companies. Uh, now, to again use the example of the cervical check, that will be similar to the state. You, I, and all your listeners indemnifying the private companies who are involved in the screening uh, elements of that process. Now, I, I think it's absolutely wrong that if a, if, if a family go to a fetal uh, health clinic uh, and mm. um, that's a private fetal health clinic, that they won't get a service there mm. unless they pay for it. 
Are you you know just politicizing this now because, uh, I mean, you're using that point. I mean, it's a very good argument you're making, uh, but it is uh, to stop this type of screening, which would give this type of diagnosis, which would uh, give uh, the green light for pregnancies to be terminated. But without that screening process, people would be facing into situations that they don't have to face into legally as we speak. And the risk may be too great to carry out those tests unless you indemnify them? Well, first of all, I'm not saying that those tests shouldn't happen. But what I'm simply saying is that a private company should not be publicly indemnified. So in other words, if... But there's always a margin of error, is there not? But but, but just with regard to this, if if a family who's on the public system go to these private companies, um, they won't get a service. But nobody says that these tests are 100% accurate, do they? No, but I'm, I'm not even talking about the accuracy. And that, that is another valid point that I'm happy to talk to you about. But what I'm just saying on, on the idea of uh, private health companies being indemnified by the public is one of the reasons why the whole health system is actually in a mess. That there should be... Okay, but specifically in relation to stories similar to this story, you're saying that uh, they should not be indemnified for carrying out inaccurate tests no, no, uh, in a system where it's impossible to carry out tests 100% accurately. Well, first of all, what I'm saying is, and the guidelines currently issued by Simon Harris say that you don't have to have a diagnostic test to carry out an abortion after three months, up to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months of a pregnancy, you can carry out an abortion without a diagnostic test. And I'm saying that that's uh, is absolutely wrong because what that will lead to in the future is cases such as this. What we're saying is the screening tests, which are, as you say, are not 100%, should not be the basis with regards to uh, uh, the carrying out of, of any decision whatsoever. Now, and, and I have to say as well, this is not my law. As you know yourself, I argued trenchantly in Leinster House against this law. But what's really shocking to me is those who, who, who own this law, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour and Sinn Féin, who've put this law in place, they need to be standing up to make sure that, at the very least, their law is implemented properly, uh, okay. because that's not the case uh, at the moment. All right, but it is, of course, a, a very important law to you personally. It's one that uh, saw you change your life significantly, leaving the Sinn Féin party to establish and lead the Ain Tu party. And we thank you for speaking to us uh, this morning, Pater Tobin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Some reaction to the interview at the top of the show with Senator Mark Daly and the topics you were discussing. William from Midloud says, Michael, uh, just as a hard border is going to be hugely risky in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, I feel that so too would be a referendum on a united Ireland. It will have to happen someday, but not sure if this is the best best time with the threat of Brexit Hmm. hanging over us and nobody really knowing what is going to happen and what is around the corner. Yeah, It's unbelievable though how tensions uh, have uh, come back again this 12th of July. It's been quiet for so many years, hasn't it? Mairead from Dohada was actually commenting on this and just says that she feels it's disgusting in this day and age that communities in the north still have to put up with these in your face 12th of 
July celebrations feels that the bonfires should be banned. They are used to taunt Catholics, she feels, and it is so wrong. And she can understand how people would, you know, would be forced to hit out or maybe retaliate because it's so in your face, she feels. Mm, Sectarianism is alive and well, it seems, yep. Uh, Thomas says, whatever about the pros and cons of having a referendum on a United Ireland, can the Republic really afford to take on the six counties? And he's not so sure that the majority of people in the north would want to be a part of Ireland. And he's saying that he's counting Catholics in this as well. Mm. Yeah, well, of course, it'll never happen until the majority of people in Northern Ireland uh, decide that that's what they want. Sean lives in the Cooley area and fears a return a return to violence if a hard border happens. He doesn't think that the UK fully grasps the implications of this after decades of peace. Hmm. He says, does anybody really want a return to those dark days? And that should be foremost in everybody's minds. Hmm. And he feels that the, those in the UK that are governing need a reminder of what it was like. Yeah, well, as it falls quiet, uh, it's easy to forget yes, about it, is, it here. It is, yes. uh, and you see it with young people here, but yes. uh, across the water, uh, I think there's little awareness of the problems that uh, could result uh, from any of these things. Fierker was listening in with interest to your discussion and he feels that uh, the time has come for a united Ireland or at least a referendum on it. And he feels that uh, the government should really be making this a priority and setting a date. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you may wish... A complete mix of You may wish, because it was made very clear in Shannon yesterday uh, by uh, the Minister responding uh, to Mark Daly uh, that uh, there is no prospect of a referendum in the near future in the opinion of the government. So, as I say, you may wish... Now, we were talking about uh, the cost of having a cancer diagnosis on uh, the programme yesterday. And indeed, if you could afford to have the illness, not that you have any choice when you get cancer, but some patients are facing additional bills of up to €1,200 a month. And you were in Dundalk yesterday, Marie, and uh, you asked these people if uh, they felt that uh, cancer patients should get more support. Definitely. I think they're going through a hard enough time already without having to worry about the extra financial cost of just even parking. I think... uh, that any assistance that they can get will definitely help um, just anything that aids them through a really difficult time and not make it more difficult for them. Because when you are sick, the last thing you want to really have to worry about is money. Oh, exactly, yeah. And sure, it's probably it's the last thing on your mind um, and it's not something they should have to be worrying about. I think their primary care should just be looking after themselves and making sure that they, they get themselves healthier rather than worrying about the money and the financial cost. Well, I had my father in hospital for a long time and I know what it cost in the car parking. And what I can't understand is those car parks were there prior to all of this. So they're actually gaining money. It's not as if they had to pay for the car parks and then charge for them. And I think it's this country is a total rip-off. I mean, it's pay, 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 and it's only the wealthy that are looked after. It's certainly not. And when you're ill, you don't need to have that on top of everything else. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's a worry. It's, it's a total worry, and it's a nightmare, and it's... I mean, you can't afford... There's people going to the Lewis Hospital. They're parking in the long-term car park. They're not fit to walk to the hospital. And they have to do that because they can't afford to go and see their family who are terminally ill. And even if you're not terminally ill, anyone, you should not have to pay. This country now, it's just pay, pay, pay. 
and they're not looking after anybody. It's a third world. Uh, I am in the lucky position that I haven't had cancer, uh, fingers crossed, as of yet. Um, but like if I were or anyone in my family, I know that we would struggle to pay our mortgage. Uh, you'd be struggling to pay your medication um, costs and even you know travel costs to the hospitals or parking costs. Um, when I would imagine, I mean, I don't have personal experience, but I would imagine that anybody who is diagnosed with cancer, uh, they just want to focus on their treatment and getting better. And having that extra burden of not being able to pay your mortgage or your bills or even not being able to pay for your medication or treatment is massive. So 100% I would be supporting that cancer patients are given as much support as as is possible. You have to pay up to €1,200 for a treatment per month. That's that's far too much for ordinary people. Can't afford it. My father-in-law had cancer and the the cost is absolutely mental. Like even just getting prescription charges and they work hard their whole lives you know it's it's, it's terrible that the price they have to pay to get better there should be free healthcare services especially for somebody with a long-term illness and um, it should be mandatory they've got enough stress trying to get better and you know with their family and everything else so it really should be free and they shouldn't have to worry that side about that side of it i think all these big charity companies and huge huge wages and ceos have to look at their own conscience first before they start blaming budgets I says ordinary people have cancer it's, it's a horrendous illness and the government want to wake up and support local people support it. you know it's just a, it's a horrendous illness and people are going through enough as it is why are we going to worry about a bill you're dying you're not going to worry about a bill eh? the reality is this thing cancer they know cancer cures works and some some strains of cancer get cured but get a grip it's distressed and worrying worrying people who have bills it's disgusting this country has changed so much it's just start thinking about people now instead of money. Our thanks uh, to the people you've been listening to there who took time out of their day in Dundalk yesterday to speak with Marie for us. And listening to uh, what those people had to say, Marie, uh, you know, was a, a couple of things went through my mind. Uh, and one of them was uh, how valid many of the points they made were. In fact, all of the points that they made were. Uh, but I, I think the overriding thought that I had was how familiar people were with cancer. Yes. And how much they knew about it and how terrible that was because it shows how commonplace cancer is. That's how many people have been touched by yeah, it. I was exactly, amazed by yeah. that mm. when I stopped people yeah. that they just, because it was random people I yeah. stopped so mm. I had no way of knowing. Yeah. I think there was one lady there who said she'd no experience. That was mm. it. Yeah. Mm. You know, the rest all had somebody yeah. that they knew who had gone through yeah. cancer diagnosis. Well, it's a, an unwelcome visitor that most of us have had uh, come into our, our lives uh, in one way or another uh, and uh, I think uh, that probably is evidence of that. Yeah, Absolutely. I have two more that came in yeah. just on, on foot of that uh, discussion yesterday. Caroline says that when you are told you have cancer your whole world falls apart as you fear the worst and you need to be in your best frame of mind to cope with the illness and treatment that follows. Many people do get better, but during that period of time when you're trying to to, to get rid of the cancer, you don't need 
the added burden of having to worry about money and that is the bottom line says Caroline. Absolutely yeah. Uh, Mairead is a cancer patient who was refused a medical card then got one for six months but both herself and her husband had to be assessed and then they both received cards and she feels that he didn't need the card and thinks that the whole system needs to be looked at. Right okay. So they were were good comments as well, Mm -hmm. Michael. If I can just return to one or two more, um, I'm conscious of the time, but we have Mm -hmm. time just for one or two more. um, On the United Ireland that we were discussing at the top of the programme, Mary says that she doesn't understand why the government's running scared, as she puts it, from a referendum on a United Ireland. Why don't they just put the vote to the people and then they'll have the answer once and for all instead of all of this faffing about and burying their heads in the sand. Okay, well, (laughs) I I think civil war is something to be concerned about, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Anne says that she doesn't feel the government are doing enough to prepare the country for an ODL result. They are being all confident, saying they won't allow this to happen, in inverted commas. Mm -hmm. But Anne says it's not that simple, as they cannot give us any guarantees that we won't see a return to a hard border. So we need to be covering all bases and make sure we have a foolproof way of moving forward as a country in the event of every Brexit outcome. Okay. So we'll finish on that. All right, and thanks for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, This 12th of uh, July, we've uh, spent some time on uh, the programme talking about the 12th and what it means and uh, the different things uh, that it means to different people on this island. Uh, Division, diversity and unity and indeed, uh, I suppose, uh, the different shades of what makes us Irish. Let's uh, hear the thoughts of the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, on what makes us Irish in this day and age. Ireland of the 21st century has become, is becoming a dynamic and cosmopolitan place, a country that embraces innovation, opportunity, dynamism and creative energy that cultural diversity brings. So we should welcome the opportunity it gives us to widen our horizons embrace other cultures and other lives. And my message to refugees has always been to ensure that their stories and experiences are added to ours in order to create an interwoven tapestry of rich cultural heritages, all of which are playing a vital part in our shared identity. They should never be, nor are they required, to forget anything. We Irish are a migrant people, and we must always recognise both the responsibility and blessing that it is to respond to the needs of migrants, wherever they may be. Ireland is a country, as I said, with a long history of migration and exile. In 1901, the census of 1901 tells us something dramatic. It is that after the great migrations following the famine of 1845-7, in that census... More Irish people who were born on the island of Ireland were living abroad than living on the island of Ireland. And thus we have a diaspora, which is reflective of our migrant tradition, of 70 million. Some 70 million of us. Michael D. Higgins, the President of Ireland, uh, was making his comments at uh, an address to welcome uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, Mr. Filippo Grandi, to the country. Thank you, Mr. President. Mrs. Higgins, and dear friends, I have to say something at the beginning. This is the first time that I'm received by a president together with refugees, and it is 
a fantastic opportunity. It's never happened to me. I've met many refugees and a few presidents, but together, it's the first time. It says a lot. It says a lot about Ireland and about its president. And thank you for your beautiful speech, and not only for your beautiful speech, but for all that you do and that Ireland does all the time to support this cause. Yeah, that's Mr. Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, thanking Michael D. Higgins for doing something truly historic, it would seem, as a president and indeed as the president of Ireland. Uh, the president uh, never fails uh, to instil pride in the people of uh, this country. Let's uh, talk to Rosemary Hennigan, who's Policy and Advocacy Officer with uh, the Irish Refugee Council. Good morning to you, Rosemary, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, and uh, the president flying the Irish flag very proudly, I think, on behalf of many of us in terms of how we view refugees and we view ourselves in times gone by and compare ourselves with people who are now looking to set up home in this country. Uh, But we have some things that we can't be quite as proud of. As you've been highlighting in a report that you've just published for the Refugee Council, the IRC's Reception Condition Directives, one year on report. And uh, indeed, uh, there's many problems uh, for asylum seekers who are seeking refuge in this country, isn't there? Yes, good morning, Michael. It's good to speak to you. Um, yes, absolutely. We're um, very, very much uh, heartened by um, the President's comments. It's always a good thing to hear about Irish people, and I think that's definitely reflected in our experience as well. On the ground and in communities, there's a lot of volunteers who are very active in supporting asylum seekers and refugees, and I think that's very important to acknowledge. Um, unfortunately, our report is a little more, bit more critical on the ground, and it's, this is based on our experience over the last 12 months with people who come in and ask for our assistance in our drop-in centre and through our housing project and through the rest of our work. So we've compiled this report to try and highlight some of the ways in which the, the state isn't implementing the law um, a year on from opting into that uh, EU directive. And unfortunately, this year has seen um, uh, a deterioration for many people who have arrived. Um, there are now 936 people living in emergency accommodation as of July 2019, and that includes 86 children as well. So. We're, we're very concerned about that, and in particular, we're very concerned that there's a number of measures uh, which we should be implementing which haven't been implemented yet, mm. and they include um, a vulnerability assessment which should be taking place. Um, that's a very important thing to, to highlight, I think, because at the outset, it, when a person first arrives at the outset of their asylum application, they should be receiving this vulnerability assessment because it identifies their special reception needs, um, which is the term under the law, and, and that means that if you're somebody who has a particular vulnerability and you have a particular need, that that would be considered when you're accommodated. And many of the people who, who are seeking asylum uh, have special needs, if you like. They're very vulnerable people. They've uh, fleed uh, quite often from war, war-torn war situations. Uh, they've uh, seen loved ones killed in front of them uh, and uh, have witnessed firsthand uh, some atrocities. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, People in those kind of situations, they find, we find that they, their conditions are exacerbated by living in a very precarious situation in a hotel room or in a B&B, particularly when you're moved around often at short notice. 
So it produces a lot of problems in terms of, say, accessing services, because if you're only going to be somewhere for a short period of time, you don't know how long it's going to be. It's very hard to, for example, access a GP, to access maybe um, counselling, which you might need for for trauma or for um, torture and other experiences you might have had on your way here. Um, but it's also affecting things like children who arrive and uh, under the under the new law, a minor is um, identified as a vulnerable person as well. So the state has to consider what, what does a child in this situation need? And the most obvious thing is, of course, education. Um, and we're seeing a lot of children living in emergency accommodation who currently don't have access to schools. One of the big problems is that they're not they're not being informed about um, what their obligations are around that in terms of you know registering for a school or whether or not they should wait. And there's a lot of misinformation or a lack of information out there, and it's creating a huge amount of distress for people in that situation. Uh, and it's not just that we said we'd like to do that. We promised to do that. In fact, there's an obligation on us because we've adopted this European directive. That's correct. And there has been some litigation on it. There's a high court case from earlier on this year where um, a judge awarded damages against Ireland for not um, having a vulnerability assessment take place. It's just it's a binding obligation. We're not doing it yet. Um, what's happening instead is a kind of uh, an ad hoc system where when people get in touch with cer- certain services, if vulnerabilities appear, then that a doctor or a consultant might take it upon themselves to say this person has a specific need. But it takes a huge amount of time and it's then very difficult for the state to identify a place to accommodate that person. What should really be happening and what the obligation is, is that within 30 working days that you're, um, you're assessed and your vulnerability is, is um, accommodated. So that, that's what should be happening. And then if something appears further on down the line when you've been here for a little while, because that's often what happens with trauma, it only surfaces after some time, then a further vulnerability assessment would take place then. But at the moment, everybody who's arriving should be receiving that vulnerability assessment within 30 working days. And unfortunately, it's not happening. Right. Uh, and uh, this doesn't uh, come cheap either because uh, we've, what, about a 1,000 people who are living in 28 emergency accommodation centres. Uh, we've 800 people who are trying to leave direct provision centres and we have people being moved ad hoc. We heard of uh, the case recently in Roscommon, wasn't it, uh, where people were uh, bussed out of a hotel to make way for a wedding and uh, the additional cost of all this is resulting in a bill of €100 million for the state. Yes, that's 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 what's happening. And um, from our perspective, it's it was quite foreseeable. We were we were saying that this was about to happen back, say, in April 2017, when we reached a 10% um, capacity buffer. So what I mean by that is the state usually would maintain an additional 10% um, of accommodation spaces in case there was, you know, an, an increase in people arriving quite suddenly. It was to anticipate that, or if a direct provision centre had to close down for whatever reason, that there would be another place to put people. So it has been foreseeable for a while, and unfortunately, there wasn't a sense of urgency to address it. it and now there's more people in these exactly. centres than there is space for them. Exactly. And there are there is work underway to try and help people to move out of direct provision centres, but there's a lot of barriers to that. And, um, for example, when you get your recommendation from the International Protection Office that you're, you be given refugee status, it still has to go to the minister, and the minister has to sign off on it. And there's been huge delays in that now for, for the last year. So we've seen people waiting nine months to a year after they've received, you know, they're at the end of the process and they've mm. received their recommendation, waiting for that final letter is taking a huge amount of time. And during that time, they should be in a position to begin preparing for their life outside of direct provision and for their life in Ireland. And it just, it isn't the case that it hasn't been happening. So people are becoming quite trapped. Uh, and 
I suppose, is a symptom of what is a crisis across every spectrum of society. I mean, the government has been accused of complete ineptitude in terms of housing and homelessness. And because of that crisis, whether it's as a result of government policy or lack of policy, it's people who are seeking refuge in this country who are also suffering as well. It's very true. And I think it's also important in that context just to remember that people who first come here, as, as you've already said, they've come from a horrible situation. They have additional needs and they will require supports setting themselves up in Ireland. Um, for example, language um, classes and the ability to kind of to have access to translation services when they're trying to, to access, say, the housing list. All of those things are even more difficult for you if you've only just arrived. Mm. You don't have the support networks necessarily. You're potentially coping with a very serious illness or a mental health illness. And all of that makes it very, very difficult for you. So I think what we need to see is some some serious intervention to try and make sure that when people do arrive here, that they get the best possible start in Ireland. Because and that they are assessed to see to, to, to see what they need. Uh, is the government exactly. ar- arguing this uh, because uh, they are entitled to look for medical screening themselves, aren't they? Yeah, it's it's just a difficulty of actually accessing it. I think in terms of the medical care. So, for example, if you're living somewhere where there are there's a shortage of GPs anyway for everybody for the entirety of the population, it's very difficult for you then to access that GP. Um, mm. And what we're seeing is people not even being able to get a medical card. It takes but, mm-hmm. I think you have to get three refusals before the HSE will assign a doctor. And just even when you're in direct provision, it's very difficult just to get around. So the cost of transport can be very difficult. And until you have your PPS number and your direct provision allowance. We've, we've met people who don't have any money and they need the money even just to go and to apply for that PPS number and for the direct provision allowance. So it's yeah. kind of a, it's a vicious circle at the moment yeah. um, and it requires some urgent, urgent um intervention. From yeah, absolutely and given that vicious circle I, I am surprised uh, to learn that 30% of uh, the people, the adults living in direct provision centres are actually working since the law changed. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, I think from our perspective, it shows the resilience of, um, of that does, section of, uh, yeah. of the population. Absolutely. Mm. And it also just shows the appetite to work and to contribute. Mm. Um, I think people people just want to be involved. They don't want to feel different and isolated. They want to integrate. They want to be on their own feet, independently living. Um, so I think giving them the opportunity to do that is enormously important. Um, and some of the things in our report highlight the barriers that are still there for people. Um, for example, the permission which you have at the moment is only for six months. It's, it is renewable, and we have seen it being renewed very quickly. But the problem is, it's, it's, it's acting as a deterrent for employers because they might want to take somebody on full time, and then they're seeing that the, the employment permission is only for a limited period. It can be difficult for somebody who's looking for a job to explain. Well, actually, it probably will be renewed, and mm. they can't say that for sure. So I think that acts as a as a deterrent for for employers. There's also things just that the the nature of direct provision. A lot of it is located in remote locations so you're reliant on public transport and again the cost of that can be quite exorbitant for people mm. um, and you're, you're travelling long distances to and from employment so what can happen is it just structurally is too difficult for you to actually access employment but it is very good news I think that 1,200 people are doing that nevertheless despite all of those barriers so that's just, important mm-hmm. to, to yeah. highlight and to kind of be, um, be, pa- be happy about it. Uh, and to some extent fulfills the obligation uh, that we've signed ourselves up to under this directive which also uh, obligates us uh, to give asylum seekers access to housing, food, clothing, healthcare and education for minors uh, and as we've already discussed to some degree I suppose we're not doing uh, as well in all areas as we are in some others. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, we'd like to see the, these um, laws properly implemented and fully implemented. We think it would make it a big difference in terms of the experience that people have when they first arrive in Ireland. It's it's not a perfect system of laws, but it's certainly an improvement on what, what's been going on previously. And it's disappointing to see that the first year of this new law has um, has just made no difference. And if anything, things look very much worse for people in emergency accommodation. Okay, Rosemary, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Rosemary Hannigan, Policy and Advocacy Officer with the Irish Refugee Council and uh, the author of uh, this report, uh, the IRC's Reception Conditions Directive, One Year On Report. Michael Reed on LMFM. Okay, I have a couple of uh, people who have been into us before and are back again today to convince you to pay more taxes. And uh, they do a pretty good job of it, I have to say. John Shanahan and uh, Jeff Fitzpatrick of the Love Drogheda Bid Plan. And they're asking uh, business uh, people in Drogheda to pay more taxes as part of a, a bid scheme. John, outline to us uh, what you're asking people to do once again, please. Thank you so much, Michael. And thanks for having us on again. Michael, this is an important undertaking for the citizens and community of Drogheda. And just like Michael, when it rains here in Ireland, the Irish have the good sense to go buy umbrellas. Mm. When we get into our cars, we have the good sense to put on our seatbelts. Mm. And when it comes to fixing towns, we have we in Drogheda are going to have the good sense to organize a bid, assess ourselves, put a, bit of, put a wee bit of a surcharge on the rates that we pay so that we, we can, by God, Michael, fix this town. It's been, we, we do a great job of whinging and complaining. We haven't, we've done a very bad job of fixing things. That's what the bid is all about. Okay, there's a, a reward, you say, to an investment. Uh, and we'll talk about the reward perhaps in a, a minute, but the investment is what? An additional 3.5% on pressure rates? Additional 3.5% on the rates, so that the, the, more than 80% are going to pay less than 300 additional euros for the purpose of getting into this bid program. Uh, more than more than half, about half of, half of all the ratepayers mm. will pay less than 100 euros. So for people who are already supporting the flaw, it's way less than what we're spending right now to support the flaw. And the truth of the matter is we could either compl- continue to whinge and complain or we can, by God, reach for our wallets, put a small amount down and start working to, to, to improve the appearance of the community. Okay. Three and a half percent might be small change to you. If It sounds like a, a lot to somebody listening to us. Do they have have to contribute? Well, Michael, what we're asking is a plebiscite. Uh, the plebiscite is a democratic process that's going to run during the month of August, and the, the local ratepayers are going to have a chance to vote yes or no. And so if they vote yes, they'll be contributing. They obviously have, a, they have the right to vote no, but if, even, if the plebiscite passes, everybody will be assessed by the county for the additional 3.5%. Uh, they can always object mm-hmm. later on if they wish, but we frankly think we've made a good case for it, and we're going to continue to make a good case that people are going to want to contribute money to the to the bid want want to put money into the uh, bid assessment okay jeff i guess the argument is you reap what you sow uh, and if you speculate you might accumulate so you're going to give an additional three and a half percent what you get in return yeah i think um i think this this really gives our town structure that's the first and most important thing because in the past like local heroes came along in 2011 it was it was a volunteer based uh, movement and it it brought lots of things it brought the fla it actually uh, initiated things like people going to Salinas California getting Yapstone to come to Drada uh, 300 jobs there it also helped kind of develop ideas like the mill which has now created over 400 jobs nothing but wrong that, with that in no, other words I, but it can be structured yeah and done better. And, and that was all on 
that was on on volunteerism mm. and volunteerism is 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 absolutely brilliant and it's great and it's our town a lot of things in our town have been built on on volunteerism but you need structure you need resources you need you need you need resources to get things done and this kind of sets out a structure what where, is the structure tell us well the structure mm-hmm. is that if if it if we're successful mm. and it, and the plebiscite passes we then uh, can uh, set the levy three and a half percent, so we get a fund mm-hmm. of between three and four hundred thousand euro every year mm-hmm. that we can start. We can put in uh, full time personnel. You form a company. We form a company, mm-hmm. yeah, and then uh, we can put full time personnel on the ground, and they can start working on the. 25 projects that we have listed in our proposal and there'll, be a, uh, there'll be a manager to oversee manager, yeah. this programme of yeah. works if you yeah. like uh, yeah. it, it'll be a town manager yeah. if you like and the other thing as well is that we can we can we can leverage other funding funds from four projects from mm. Fall to Ireland from from other government bodies that we can double up on that money so the, and and the experience from other big companies in 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 the rest of Ireland is that that that, that is the case mm. and we can we can, you know, we we should be able to, to look at these government grants uh, where part funding is available, but yeah. you'll have somebody focused on the job at hand yeah. and in a position to not just look at what's there, but have the time to go through the bureaucratic yeah. process of applying and so yeah, on. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So we've been working. We've a we've a really strong working group. A whole variety of different types of businesses, different sizes, intra-Huda, and we've been working together on a voluntary basis bringing this forward. One of the projects that we've just, one of the many projects that mm. we have worked on in the recent past is the Purple Flag, which is an accreditation scheme for the nighttime economy. Drogheda's nighttime economy is one of the real bright sparks of, uh, of, of all of our kind of offering, and it's key to developing tourism that we have a really strong restaurant that it's vibrant that mm. it's it has a variety of things that people can do and it it appeals it's a to recognized status for a town isn't yeah, it yeah. yes mm-hmm. yeah 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 very yeah. good yeah and will obviously be of appeal to people who are looking at where they might go next uh, and that's the type of thing so you're talking about people coming from outside of the area as a result of that you're paying your three and a half percent which is obviously money going out, but when people come into the town, you're hoping that money will come in. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And, and very frankly, uh, we don't invest in our community. Nobody mm. else is going to. The front pages of the current news tell us about jobs being lost at Coca-Cola. Uh, we've got to stand up for ourselves and make sure that we represent the community to the local industrial development authority, make sure that the industrial development authority takes notice mm. of Drada and gets proactive in bringing more jobs to the community. That's one of the things that the biz got on the top of its agenda. We want to represent Drada effectively and be a, a citizen-based representation organization with a local board of governors, mm-hmm. board of directors, to take positive action with the town manager to go after those kinds of opportunities. Okay, 12 months ago, I don't think anybody in Drada knew how big the FLA could be. Uh, in a few weeks' time, it'll be the second time it'll be here, and everybody knows how big it is and the opportunity that there is for business and so on. Uh, has uh, the bids uh, company as such got a, a, a goal of that size? Have you got one big issue uh, that you're aiming towards that you could sell to people this morning? The answer is really two questions, two, two answers mm-hmm. to that question. The first is that there is a huge opportunity to, as they say in Texas where I grew up, to dance with the one who brung you. And what brung Drada along, and which, which we mm-hmm. all recognize, is this is a wonderful, amazing, historic town in Ireland. 
History sells, and historic features sell. People come from all over the world to go to Newgrange. Do they come to draw it? In the most part, the answer is no. And why is that? Because we've absolutely failed to sell Drada as an historic heritage town. There's an international program. Not a single town in Ireland has joined the International Heritage Towns program. We're going to be the first. We're going to do that okay. next year, and we're going to use that to drive the tourism model to bring to bring traffic, footfall, mm. and customers to draw it. Okay, a few tin whistles and a few fiddles can bring half a million people to the town. So I suppose uh, when you're looking at it that way, you know, a little bit of imagination and a lot is possible. That's absolutely right. Okay, all right. People will get a chance to vote in September, is it, Jeff? Yeah. So uh, the plebiscite is open. So it's a it's a, 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 a loud county council will issue the plebiscite votes to the red pairs in the bid area. So there's about 1,554 of those. They'll go out on the 26th of August and then it's open for four weeks. Uh, you vote yes or you vote no. You sign the ballot paper, send it back uh, to the address that's on the, on the on the ballot sheet and then on the 20, 20th of September the votes are counted and it's a simple majority, 50% plus one. Uh, it gets passed or it doesn't. But we need the community to help us make that happen. So we're going to call this morning for volunteers. We've got to get 50 volunteers in the front door during the month of August to help us walk the streets, take the plebiscite ballots around the town. And Jeff's got a magic telephone number he's going to call. Jeff, have you got that number ready for us? The number is 087-230-9807. One more time. 087-230-9807. Operators are standing by. Thank you very much, Jeff. This is terrific. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope so. Uh, and that number is available from the radio station if you didn't have yeah. a, a pen to hand. But look, thanks to both of you for coming in to us once again this morning. John Shanahan and uh, Jeff Fitzpatrick of uh, the Love Drawhada Bid Plan. Uh, that's uh, two members of uh, the Drawhada Bid Development Committee. Now, if you were watching television last night, uh, you may have seen an appeal for information on the killing of Irene White in Dundalk in uh, uh, 2005. Her daughter, Jennifer McBride, was speaking uh, to Primetime on RTE television and we'll hear a little bit of what she had to say on the television last night. Jennifer, when he said that word, guilty, what were you feeling? There was a sense of relief uh, for the reason that we thought, we were told to expect three to four weeks of a trial and it was a lot of anxiety and what were we going to have to face and listen to and everything like that. So it was like, well, at least we know it's going to be a positive outcome in the right direction, like it's going to be the way we want it to go. So there was a sense of relief, but at the same time, like, pain, anger, hurt, all different emotions, but I was happy to know that it was a guilty plea. The 6th of April 2005 started like any other day as we all set off together to school with Mum in our car. I was first to be dropped off and as I said goodbye to everyone, I did not realise that would be my last ever goodbye to my Mum and also goodbye to my brother and sister for a long time. Like I had 17 years, I have so many treasured memories all through the years. Like my sister was four years old and my brother was six, who's just after turning six. Like... My memory is very sketchy when I was that age, so it, it breaks my heart that they don't have like such fresh memories and such me- many memories that I have. So it, 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 it is heartbreaking. They missed out on so much. My mum was everything to me and to my brother and sister. Like it, It's just heartbreaking to think that people, can, people in this day and age can go around and think that they can pay people off 
to kill, kill a human being. It's, it's, it's horrible. I try my best to not to think about it because I can't... I, 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 I don't even, even attempt it. But what I did think about for a long time was my poor nanny had to walk in and, and she didn't... Not only did she think about it, she saw it. She actually saw it before her eyes. So I, I don't even know. Like, she died of a broken heart. She, 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 she never, never got over what she saw. Yeah. Who could possibly get over that? People are calling it the mastermind. And he's the man behind the whole lot. And the ultimate goal would be to have him before the courts and charged. That would be the, the ultimate goal, yeah. Then, only then will I feel like I have got true justice for my mum, that she deserves. We want answers and we want justice. And if anyone has any information, of course, please do come forward. Even if it seems so small to them, it could be huge. So we, that, that's why I do it. She was stabbed multiple times in a frenzied, uncontrolled act of sheer brutality. She was then left to die helplessly and alone in a pool of her own blood on her kitchen floor. To even think of the torture our gentle, loving ma'am had to endure in the last moments of her life will haunt us forever. Jennifer McBride uh, speaking to Primetime and RTE Television about the murder of her mother, Irene White. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll finish our programme today as Dull Business finished its term yesterday with the Mercosur trade deal. Thousands of farmers came from around the country yesterday asking government to stand with them and to support them. And I'm asking you here today, are you going to leave our beef farmers fade away and be driven out of existence because what we need is we need the government to unite and say no to this trade agreement it is harm for our beef industry it's going to finish our beef industry and we're looking on you and the government to come out with a clear statement saying no to it on behalf we'll of the be beef farmers there you go. That's uh, Michael Healy Ray speaking during leaders' questions yesterday. Later in uh, the day, the government uh, was uh, defeated on a vote on the Mercosur trade deal. And Michael Healy Ray, Independent TD in Kerry, joins us now. And a very good morning to you. I think it's clear listening to your contribution yesterday, which way you voted. Uh, but uh, you didn't win the government over, obviously. Well, you see, the thing about it is, is there was actually a big defeat for the, the government in that Fianna Fáil did uh, support Sinn Féin's uh, motion, as did uh, the majority of other independents, because this is a very serious issue. We have a very stark choice to make here. The week before uh, this, on uh, the record of the Dáil, Richard Bruton, uh, when he was answering me, questioning him about this, proposed trade agreement. He was actually trying to sell it as a good deal. This is not a good deal. The people from the beef uh, movement, the people from the IFA, the ICMSA, all the family organisations, and every farmer in the country knows that this is not a good deal for But us. it's not a deal, as in the deal hasn't been done. It's, it, yes. a, it's a, a political agreement, as the Taoiseach pointed out the other day. It, it is, and, and let me word it right too, because I don't want to misinform anybody, as you know. This is a proposed trade agreement that has been in the making for over 20 years. Mm. But what is being proposed, can I just explain it in the simplest way, in, in what I would call my ordinary person's language? What we're talking about doing here in Ireland, we're telling our beef farmers, cut back in the amount of animals that you have in the land and plant trees. That's what we're telling people in, in Ireland to do. 
But in South America, in these four um, countries that we're talking about the beef coming from, what we're saying to those people is cut down the rainforests at the rate of a football field every minute, which is what they're actually doing right now as we're speaking. The length of time we'll be talking, they'll have a couple of football fields of, of uh, timber knocked down and cut down and burnt. And then they're setting grass seed and they're growing grass to fatten beef. Now, where is the government's uh, document and, and climate control and climate change and carbon? Where is the policy on all of this? This is actually crazy. What they're talking about doing, look at the cost of bringing the beef uh, from from uh, mm. South America and take it around, around the world. What sort of a carbon footprint is going to be on that? This is silly, insane stuff that does not make sense. But and you don't why. accept it then when the government says that this actually will, will put manners on them because they've signed up to the Paris Accord uh, and in order to qualify under Mercosur, they have to fulfil their obligations under the Paris Accord, which would stop the deforestation of South America. These people don't care about anything. When you see the regulation that our farmers, our farmers are over-regulated and underpaid. Mm. If you take the traceability that we have with regard to our animals, from birth until death, every whole thing is 100% accounted. We have no hormones, we have full traceability. They don't tag a calf they have them inside in food lots, in places where they're in these stations where they're where they're eating dust, and and they, they don't have the, the half of the quality and and what we have and what our farmers are producing is second to none. And all I want is, and it's the same as the majority of other politicians want, and the people in your county want mm. this. We want our our farmers, whether it's a small farmer with ten or twenty cows, or or a milkman with fifty or sixty cows. We want to see those family farms being there for the future. And what I mean Well, do you, do, do, do you want to stop exporting beef? Uh, I mean, what we're talking about 99,000 tonnes coming to yes. 27 and, and, countries, uh, yes, if you then, exclude Britain. Uh, and at the moment, is, instead of 99,000, we're exporting about 300,000 tonnes yes. to Britain. But what is being proposed will be hurtful to our beef industry. Anybody that knows about the price of beef... But what about free trade? I mean, this is one of uh, the principles of the Irish food industry. This is another point that Taoiseach made during the week. Uh, We build our our, uh, industry on free trade and we succeed because of the quality of our beef. Uh, And we've nothing to be afraid of because quality will win over. Well, I'm listening to what you're saying. And like everything in life, my, like my late father used to always say, you're entitled to your opinion, but I don't agree with it. No, I'm just I'm giving you the Taoiseach's opinion now, in fairness. Right, well, that's yeah. fine. Well, but OK, what you're repeating, I don't agree with, and I'll tell you why. Uh, what we want, and when I say we, I mean farmers. All we want, and the people that are listening to a programme today, nice, honest-to-God people who might have inherited land are bought it and worked hard to buy it and maybe borrowed money and worked through hard times to buy that land. Mm. They don't look on that land as an asset. All they look on it is it's a place that they have. It's their place. They value it. They treasure it. They adore it. They love it. And what they want to do is farm it, try to make the little bit of money that they can out of it. And then, as they're getting older and tired, 
transfer it onto their sons, daughters, nieces, nephews. And that those people then will be good enough to continue it to the next generation. Okay. And that's all any one of us wants. I, I, I'm, ju- I'm just out of time. Uh, well, well, just finally, I see this deal as something that will upset and hurt and endanger all of that. And that's why I... Okay. But ju- 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 just very finally and very briefly, please, uh, can you tell us what that vote yesterday means? Uh, does it interfere at all with uh, the deal? Well, no, it sends a message, and I'd rather that the fact that we won that vote rather than losing it, because to lose it would have definitely sent out a wrong message. To the thousands of farmers that came to Dublin, the one message that I that came this week, the one message that I have is, thanks be to God and thanks be to you, we won that vote. But okay. that's a small step in the right direction, but it will take an awful lot of us being united and fighting to ensure okay. that we, we would protect the future of our family. All right, now. I'm out of time. Thank you very much indeed, though, for your time. Always good Thanks to speak to you. Thanks for having me for joining us around the programme this morning. Independent TD in Kerry, Michael Healy. Ray brings our programme to its conclusion uh, this week. Remember, as always, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning with Orla Carmody at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. michael at lmfm.ie